Hey there, listeners. This is Stuart. We are back early with a special episode this month. From time to time, we have a chance to talk to people who are doing really great research around the Great Lakes. And uh, we want to present those to you in, in something new we're calling Researcher Features. And these will be periodic interviews that we do on no particular set schedule. And we'll release them when they're ready, which sometimes uh, will be right away. Sometimes they'll be a little bit down the road, just depending on how everybody's schedule goes. And so this is the uh, first of those researcher features, and I'm really glad to feature Zhao Ma, who's one of my colleagues here in the Department of Forestry and Natural Resources at Purdue. And I first met Zhao, actually, it's kind of a funny story. Well, sort of funny. I started at Purdue in 2013 as a postdoctoral researcher. And at the time I applied for that postdoc job, I also applied for a faculty position in the Department of Forestry and Natural Resources. And so I showed up on campus. Um, after applying for the faculty position, while, while, uh, after I'd gotten the, the postdoc position, and the very first thing my mentor did was said, all right, we need to talk, Stuart. And so I sat down in her office, and she said, well, I've got uh, bad news for you. You didn't get the faculty job. And uh, for those of you who are not in academia, uh, maybe you make good life choices, or uh, you want a steady job that doesn't involve moving across the country, or maybe you uh, value your free time. Well, for whatever reason, those of you who are not in academia, uh, uh, that's not surprising. Academic jobs are, are few and far between, and they're very hard to get. And so uh, I was not super upset. Anyway, I went about my business, and then a, a few weeks later, the interviews for this job, uh, for the academic job, for the faculty job, started. And uh, one of the people who came in was Xiao Ma. And so I'm nobody at Purdue. I'm a postdoctoral researcher, which is, you know, in the grand scheme of things, absolutely nothing. And Zhao was walking her way around campus, and she uh, opened up the door to the lab where we were, and she said, oh, you must be Stuart, blah, 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 blah. I'm so interested in hearing about, you know, whatever research I was doing or something like that. And so that meant that not only had Zhao uh, done research to know who I was and what I looked like and what I did, but she had sort of committed it to memory. Um, and I, again, was absolutely nobody. And so the fact that she did that with me gives you an idea about the type of uh, intellect and preparation that, that uh, Zhao, Zhao does. Uh, intellect she has and the type of preparation that she does. So anyway, I'm a big fan of her. She's extraordinarily uh, intelligent, hardworking, smart, really nice too. And so we're glad to feature her, a uh, social scientist, in our very first researcher feature. Now, before we get going, I also want to let you know, uh, we recently did a story. You can go see it in the IISG newsroom, the Illinois-Indiana Sea Grant newsroom, that is, at iicgrant.org, or look for a link in the show notes. And we just did a, a story about Chow and the research that she had done, and I think that's worth reading in addition to listening to this podcast. And so I encourage you to check that out. And with that, uh, let's kick in. Well, we have a new theme song for the researcher feature. So we're going to kick in the researcher feature theme song. And then we'll go straight into the episode. And since we weren't sure when we were going to release this, you'll hear Carolyn and I talk a little bit about what episode this is. That's all wrong. That's not the right episode number. I will talk about where to go see the show notes. That's not right either. Just go to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com and, and look for this episode. Or just look down to your podcast player and you can see show notes there. So other than all of the wrong stuff that you're about to hear, I think the interview with Zhao is really right. So let's go ahead and uh, kick off the interview. Researcher feature, a feature in which a researcher gonna teach us about the Great Lakes.
Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a podcast in which I get people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and I know a lot about the increasingly common playoff failures of the New Orleans Saints, but I do not know a lot about the Great Lakes. I'm joined, as always, today by Carolyn Foley, Illinois Indiana Sea Grant's research coordinator. Carolyn, what's up? Not much, Stuart. What's up with you? <laughs> also, not much. That is a conversation starter if I've already seen one. Yes. Uh, and we will move on from that to, uh, did you have a nice weekend? Uh, but anyway, great. I'm doing great. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, and this, this month, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to focus on some cool research that's going on around the Great Lakes. One of the great things about our job is that we get to work with people who are just doing fascinating stuff. Asking all sorts of really cool questions and trying to get answers and generating new questions, sharing their information. It's really great. Yeah, it is really great. And one thing I like about it a lot is it's not, you know, there's a theoretical component, but it's not, you know, super theoretical only. There's this research trying to get answers to questions that can help people make a difference in their everyday life. So this month, we're bringing in Zhao Ma. She's a researcher at Purdue University. She's a social scientist, and we'll hear some more from her right now. Hi there. Today we are talking with Zhao Ma. And Zhao, what's your position here at Purdue University? Um, so I'm a social scientist and an associate professor in natural resources social science in the Department of Forestry and Natural Resources at Purdue. Okay. And so you received some funding to do a project um, that started a couple of years ago. What were you trying, what question were you trying to answer with mm -hmm. that project? Um, so I was a PI of the project, but I was working with my uh, dear friend and colleague, Sarah McMillan from uh, Agriculture and Biological Engineering Department. And we have also Linda Procopi and Bernie uh, Engel from uh, um, the university as uh, part of our team as well. So it wasn't just me, right? We have a small team of researchers. And the question that was most um, of most interest to us is really to understand not only the biophysical potential of best management practices in terms of reducing uh, water pollution to the Great Lakes, but also understanding the social acceptance of these different practices and how the biophysical potential of the practices and social acceptance can kind of work together, really give us a realistic understanding of how much we can rely on best management practices to actually achieve water um, water pollution reduction goals. So hold on one second. I'm sorry. So can you help me understand best management practices and what those are? So those are things that different landowners can do. Is, is that right? Right. So best management practices, best management of water quality uh, related issues, right? And practices, individuals or um, groups or uh, entity, uh, private businesses can adopt and, uh, and implement on the landscape, right? So um, from a household individual perspective, we can all get a ring barrel, right, for example. We can choose to um, reduce application of fertilizers on our private lawn, right? right. Um, from a business perspective or entity like a church or like a, um, um, a school, right, they can also do uh, these kind of things, right, individual households can do, but they can also put in larger scale green infrastructure such as a retention pound or some other um, ways, right, to reduce water pollution. So all of these are kind of categorized as uh, 
best management practices. Right. Or like a green roof or something like that exactly. too is a potential. Exactly. Thing. There's so many varieties, right? So if you're a farmer, then you might want to think about like no tillage will be a, a best management practice, right? Right. And so where were you working to try to understand what practices were being put in place and how they might affect water quality? So the two watersheds we were touching on was um, the East Branch Little Calumet River and the Trail Creek watersheds, both in northwestern Indiana. Okay. Um, but for the social science uh, research components, right, we, we have to have a kind of more political boundaries, right, rather than using watersheds. Mm-hmm. So we worked in um, Porter and Laporte County. And that's, that's kind of a tricky thing when you're thinking about, because um, a watershed does not follow political boundaries all right. the time. Exactly. And so there may be things happening, or you know, even state boundaries or um, right. international boundaries. Right? right. And that was the first challenge, actually, for our project, because my my uh, co-PI, Sarah McMillan, she's, uh, she was in charge of the modeling component, understanding the biophysical potential of these BMPs, best management practices. So she uses uh, watershed boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. But for me, in order to talk to residents and farmers and be able to like survey people, I need a sampling frame. And you can't really get that at the watershed scale, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to look at what counties sit within that watershed, you use county boundaries, okay. right? And then, of course, they don't always line up, so that's challenge number one. <laughs> well, um, okay, so we talked about what question you set out to answer. Do you think you answered it? Um, I would say we did to a great extent, but not everything, right? So as a part of the process, we actually discovered more questions. There are certain things that we went in thinking um, that might be what was happening. Um, And, you know, some of them we were able to confirm, right, our hypothesis, our pre-conceived you know, notion about what's going on in the landscape. But we also discovered a new thing that we didn't really know why, right? So I suppose some follow-up research will be really helpful. And then the modeling component, um, we did as much as we could, but the little bit at the end we couldn't completely finish uh, with the rest of the project due to data availability. And that's another challenge that until you jump into the project, start to look at what water uh, water quality data there is available at what scale and how different sources of data can talk to each, each other, you wouldn't really know what could be done completely, right? So that's a little piece we still kind of left hanging there. So what um, what are the different sources of data that you're talking about here? So to get information from the residents, mm-hmm. you did what type of data collection? So we did a number of uh, qualitative interviews, kind of like a conversation we're having here, right? So we have some pre-drafted questions asking people about their perceptions of water pollution issues, their concerns, um, their interest in adopting some of these best management practices, right? And if they notice their neighbors or other people in their uh, vicinities are doing something similar, right? So we have a lot of these kind of conversational questions that really help us gain a better understanding of where people are in terms of what they're thinking and what they're doing. And that was really helpful to inform the development of a survey instrument that we send out to thousands of residents later, right? So we couldn't have a two-hour-long conversation with every individual. So we probably had, if I remember correctly, 12 to 15 interviews. And then that 
lend to a survey at a much larger scale. So that's from the social science side, right? The primary data are these two sources. We also had census data because that was very helpful to understand neighborhood structure, composition. So we... Um, used a lot of the census, uh, U.S. census data. And on the water um, quality side, we had a, we used a lot of EPA data and USGS data trying to understand the, the, the NNP and sediment um, content in the water. What kind of pee in the sediment? <laughs> <laughs> Nitrogen, phosphorus, and, uh, and uh, sediment. Got it. Okay. <laughs> the right. three things that we're looking at. So those are the, those are the con- contaminants that are getting into the water right. from the land right. and then potentially go either toward the lake or down toward, like, the Mississippi River. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So um, the data that you were mentioning, the census data, the USGS data, the EPA data, are those all publicly available mm-hmm. data that you were um, so they they are publicly available, right? Um, but you kind of need to know where to find them. Uh, it's not you know it's not everything organized in a clearinghouse. You can just go and have all the water data um, from these two counties, right? Downloaded at the right scale, right? So we have to do some digging. And Sarah McMillan student Jonathan Mills um, and uh, and uh, Rachel. Uh, we're kind of in charge of that process, right? So I know they spend a lot of time trying to figure out what are the right data sets we could use at the right scale, right? And then the census data actually was pretty easy to use. You just go and download them. Right, yeah. okay. And so um, you mentioned grad students. Mm-hmm. How many grad students worked on this project with you? So uh, as a team, we had three grad students. So there w- was one student, Jen, uh, Jennifer uh, Dominich, was a social science student. She completed her master's degree, actually, based on this project. And we have two uh, ABE students, uh, Ag Biological Engineering student. Rachel is a, a current PhD student. She helped for the first year um, as part of the her research experience, and then transition to Jonathan, Jonathan Mills, uh, who is a, a master's student. He's finishing this semester. So by the end of the semester, hopefully I can tell you exactly what's happening <laughs> for, the, for the modeling component. In terms of which of the practices right, ultimately exactly, right. will do the best at reducing exactly, water quality. Exactly. We will stay tuned for those results. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, but let's talk a little bit more about the graduate students. So mm-hmm. how so this is one graduate student who's working with you. Two graduate two students who are working with your co-investigator. Yes. How many graduate students total do you have in your lab at any one time? Um it fluctuates quite a bit, right? So some years I have a smaller lab, maybe three grad students, right? Uh last year was a particularly exciting and chaotic year. I think we had a total of 13 people in my lab. I want to say nine were grad students, um, you know, PhD and master's students. So that was a was a exceptionally large year, right? But on average, I would say five, six students. It really kind of varies from year to year. And are these students basically all supported by money that you've brought in through a grant to work on a specific project mm-hmm. for a time period? Mostly, okay. right. So, um, our lab has been really fortunate. We got support from uh, organizations like uh, the Indiana Illinois Sea Grant, from uh, National Science Foundation, from uh, USDA, um, U.S. Department of uh, of Agriculture, um, from um, U.S. State Department to work um, abroad um, in some cases, and other foundations. The Forest Service is a big 
big funder of my my lab research as well, right? So most of the the students are funded by external grants, but we're also very fortunate in this department. Um, there's some uh, departmental assistantship, so sometimes I have been able to kind of put together different resources to fund students. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of like a puzzle piece to exactly. try to exactly. figure out how to support the students while they're exactly. here. And that's becoming more and more important in our line of work because honestly, you know, the, the, the amount of research funding available to researchers is kind of decreasing each year. Um, at least that's my personal perception, right? Especially for social science work, right? So we really, um, our ability to get like, you know, a million dollar grant to just support what we want to do is quite limited, right? So our ability to pull together and convince different donors and different funders to uh, pull together resources to support a project, that's really, really important. Right. And you're asking questions that can actually affect people's lives, potentially. Like if you want to reduce water, you know, exactly. improve the water quality. Exactly. So you can see an issue like that could potentially attract interest from multiple agencies and multiple entities and organizations. Right. you got to cobble it together. And then from the organizational standpoint, so as people who fund researchers, uh, you kind of have to be willing to, to share the, the results and the glory and things like that. And right. sometimes that is fights over logos. It's usually fights over logos, uh, but yeah, other that times works out okay. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, recognizing, I think it takes a certain organizational humility, which should be easy to have, but not all organizations have it. Right, right. Yeah. and also just you know, partly depends on the researcher team, right? Like I think over time we are trained in terms of our mindset, right, to really be conscious, acknowledging the people, organizations supported us, right, whether through direct funding or through other in-kind support. And that's really important, right? You need to recognize people's help um, so they could also go back to their agency and then potentially obtain more, more support, right? So it's really just, you know, doing kind of the basics, right? In terms of the research that we were talking about when we started, Mm -hmm. what was the most surprising thing to you about your research findings, um, particularly on the social science side? Um, I wouldn't say surprising, but I would say most exciting is we went in um, thinking that um, information, which many different conservation organizations and resource management agencies really kind of focus on delivering information, disseminating information among stakeholders, right? So there is this notion that um, lack of information or lack, lack of knowledge is really the core of many environmental problems. Only if people know, they would uh, choose to do the right thing, right? And then we will just address a lot of the problems we have. Um, we have previous theories and studies kind of allow us to hypothesize, right, the role of information may be limited, but we have never tested in this particular context in terms of a BMP adoption to reduce water pollution, right, in this kind of multi-group residential, agricultural, industrial landscape, right? So we went in hoping to be able to say something about the role of information, and uh, we were able to uh, say something about that, right? Turned out we were right, which is always great. Um, <laughs> the role of information was quite limited, right? So if you think about 
um, different residents living in this landscape. Some people already had a previous, you know, have positive attitudes towards um, adopting BMPs and reducing water pollutions. And there are people on the more negative side. And then you have this whole lump of people sort of in the middle. So once we did our information experiment with these people, we realized information really does not change too much of the attitudes on the two extreme ends. Right. So the only thing we could hope is maybe information could steer some uh, thinking and some uh, interest in this middle group. Right. So what we found is if people were already negative information, giving them more information about why this issue is important only makes them more negative. If people were already positive, you give them more information, they reconfirm their idea. Yes, we do want to adopt and we do want to support this. Right. And it doesn't do too much to the people in the middle. And you sort of you know, overall, you don't see a very significant effect of giving people information. So hold on, we're, we're run that by me again. So you gave people different amounts of information about a best management practice, about, say, I don't know, rain barrels, was that one, or... Um, we gave people two types of information. Okay. Well, actually, our our experiment had the three components, right? So one, um, well, I guess three branches, right? One is we just gave people no information. Okay. We just did a kind of pre-survey and a post-survey. So it's kind of a control condition or exactly. a, a no, no, no intervention condition. Exactly. Okay. And the second um, branch is a treatment, and we give people very generic information. We tell them about, um, you know, water pollution generally is an issue, and here are some things you can do, but we talked about in a very generic term. We didn't give them any information about the specific watersheds they're living in and then, you know, the type of pollution there are and the specific things they could do. But it's just kind of, uh, we're trying to mimicking the general flyers very often we see um, from variety of organizations, right? And the third um, branch of the experiment is a very specific information that we got from our modeling component. We know exactly what pollution present in the watersheds we're interested, and then where the sources of the pollution, whether from agriculture or residential or whatever, right, industrial, and then what specific things people could do, right? right. So our hope is to um, see the role of information in general, but also be able to tell a little bit about this generic information versus a more tailored information, which one works better. And so even with the tailored information, you found that there wasn't a strong effect? Or? Nope. Huh. No. The tailored was a little bit better than mm-hmm. the generic information, um, but the generic information really just have no and so effect. The, inf- the information itself was just uh, about like the, the water conditions and, and how you might... Uh, so was it just like dry information about water quality and protecting water quality, or were there uh, other aspects in there, like looking at um, uh, like normative influences or something? No, it was just dry information. Okay. That's yeah. interesting, mm-hmm. yeah. And as you know, I do a lot of research on climate attitudes and adaptations and things like that, and we find that same story over and over again, that, yeah, giving people information doesn't magically make them better people, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, it makes you a better person, listener, <laughs> but everybody else. Right, right. No, but that's important, right, because... Even though we know um, the information is important, absolutely, right? It's necessary but not sufficient in terms of changing behavior, changing attitudes and behavior, right? So for us, that was a very uh, important finding. Uh, it's not to say we are against um, distributing important information to people, but we just think that's alone. That alone is not going to cause the effect that we were hoping to see. 
there's a, a story about your research project, the entire research project that was mm-hmm. recently written by Irene Miles of Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and people can find the link to that in the show notes. So, Zhao, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about your research project? Some, any other really important findings that you think came out of it, or mm-hmm. are you st- would you rather wait until you have those final results? Well, I guess there was maybe two more little things that you know, might be interesting to share with your listeners, right? Um, one is um, what we found is people really always think the pollution is caused by somebody else, right? So it was very interesting when we surveyed urban residents, suburban residents, rural residents versus um, small, medium-scale farmers and large-scale farmers, right? These are the five groups of residents um, in the watersheds we were particularly targeting for our work. Um, the urban residents tend to think the water pollution more coming from uh, crop production, right? And then, of course, um, then urban residents and suburban residents also think a lot of pollution come from uh, septic tanks used by rural residents who are not in the farming category, right? And then farmers think actually a lot of the pollution do come from urban long fertilizer, uh, snow melt, salt, that sort of things, right? So there's a little bit of people tend to think other residential groups' contribution to the water pollution problem is larger than, you know, their own, they're their own right? Or it's larger proportionally in terms of the actual, um, the actual sources, right? So that was something quite interesting. I think it's a part of human nature, right? We tend to think it's somebody else's problem, right? Um, but it is very nice to be able to see it with concrete data. That's indeed the case, right? The second thing I would like to share briefly is actually Stuart mentioned that earlier in terms of the power of social influence, right? That is really something we noticed in our study um, how important it is that people are influenced by their peers, right? People they consider as their peers, maybe their families, their friends, other landowners or their neighbors um, um, that they could they interact with on a regular basis. So all these peers actually have a very strong um, persuasion power on individual behavior, right? Um, so what we see is people who value more about their peer opi- opinions, right? Or if they have observed more um, what their peers have done, they're more likely to adopt similar practices. Right. So that suggests, we may edit this out, but that suggests an outreach strategy, right? And so you give people information on conditions, on water quality conditions and things they can do, uh, but without including any normative info, in, without any uh, uh, peer influence type information in there. But so maybe the information that drives action uh, is is information about what the sources of pollution are and what homeowners like you or landowners like you are doing to, to prevent it. So that's that's phase two, uh, which we should find funding for. They say, um, <laughs> Anytime. Yeah. <laughs> Notice I said find funding, not provide funding. Um, but but it's, it's just that. It's like all right. So but let's let's well, let's make this problem personal, right? It's very easy to other away all of your problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, say oh this is other people are causing this. I mean, I noticed that in my dissertation work on the net ban in Florida, you know, on a gill net ban in 1994, you saw that same thing, othering away the problem because I think that's an important defense mechanism, frankly. Right. But, 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 but so I wonder if we personalize the problem and work on an outreach strategy based on that or an information provision strategy based on that. I wonder if that's more likely to influence uh, attitudes and, and, and or behaviors. I do think that's very important, right? I mean, this is not 
anything new, right? In in fact, this kind of using normative influence to persuade conservation behavior has been used in energy uh, energy sector, right? So if you you, you I, I remember getting energy bill saying, oh, your neighborhood uh, average energy consumption is as A, right, and yours is B, right? So when I'm like above A, that really makes me feel very bad, and I'm going to do something next month to reduce my energy usage, right. right? So similar things I imagine can be done in terms of water pollution, but we also need to be um, careful, right? And because, you know, norm is very powerful, but it uh, it's also quite specific, right? There yeah. are different types of norms. There are norms we call descriptive norms, things you can see what other people do. And in our study, that actually is a more uh, powerful aspect of the norm, right? People actually respond to descriptive norm. If what do they observe their neighbors are doing, what they observe other landowners are doing with their house mm-hmm. or with their field, that seems to have a stronger influence on um, in our study, right? And then there's a, another type of norm, we call, it, um, we call it subjective norm, right? That is more what you think other people believe you should be doing, right? So it's a little bit more convoluted. And in some conservation cases, that is a stronger motivation, right? But in our study, specific study, we found it less important than a descriptive norm, right? But descriptive norm is something that you know, you can try to create it through information, through messaging, but it's also something people have to go out and be able to see um, in their neighborhood or on their landscape, right? So I imagine some kind of demonstration projects or right. things that's more visible in this particular case might be um, helpful or at least can be used in, in, in addition to the messaging. Yeah. For example, I see some... Um some rain gardens around. I'm right. going on a walk and I see, oh, this is a rain garden. There's mm-hmm. a sign and it's in my neighborhood. Exactly. Like that. Yeah. And I know uh, Dr. Linda Perkopi was supported by uh, Indiana, Illinois Sea Grant before, right? She has projects basically doing that, right? Giving people not just a rain barrel, but also giving, giving them the signage. Yeah. Right. But it can also be kind of pernicious. Uh, the, you know, those descriptive norms. I think about that a lot because Indiana generally, and West Lafayette specifically, there's like a ton of litter. We're one of the states with the most litter of any state. And I think the reason for that is the w- unbelievable amount of wind we have here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you see this litter everywhere, and that, that forms its own descriptive norm, right? Where people are like, oh, it's okay to litter. And, mm-hmm. and so it becomes sort of self-fulfilling in that way. Right, uh, right. And so I think that's Yes, I think about that specifically all of the time when I see the just unbelievable amount of like fast food wrappers right. uh, and, you know, uh, tires. Right, and, exactly. Yeah. So that actually, you know, if earlier on you asked me, right, is there anything surprising we found or did I get to answer all the questions, right, we, we, we planned um, before the project started? That's actually one thing we would really like to do in the future um, is to fi- think descriptive norm is so powerful, right, like the people's ability to see what's happening in their, in their surroundings. Um, but we want to know where is the tipping point of that, right? right? So do you need to see 80% of your neighbors all have a ring garden in order for you to feel obliged to install a ring garden? Or is that 20% of the neighbor doing the same thing would be enough, right? So I think there's a lot of more fine, um, kind of finer, like a, a, a finer scale questions that can be asked, right? That would right. be really helpful. That would be very cool. Yeah. So, I great. think so too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Great. So um, thanks, Xiao. It was really interesting to talk with you today. Really appreciate you coming by and telling us about your research and your lab and how things work. That's really great. And I think our listeners will really appreciate it, too. Yeah, yeah. anytime. And if people want to find out more uh, about you and the work you do, do you have a website? Do you have social media? What, what kind of... Yeah, I do, actually. Um, I have a lab website. So if you search my name, uh, you know, Zhao Ma Purdue, uh, my website shows up. And then on that, there is a link uh, to my lab as well. Right. And uh, I also have a Twitter. I believe my Twitter handle is Zhao Ma underscore Purdue. Okay. Right. So um, that's my work Twitter. So um, welcome to contact me through that too. Before we uh, conclude, may I just add one more thing? Certainly. Um, I just wanted to say all the research we do, at least all the research I do in my lab, right? Nothing would be possible without excellent grad students. And I just have been very fortunate to have a group of very dedicated grad students. And sometimes I feel when, you know, a project get reported or um, an interview happens, right? Very often it's with a PI. Um, I mean, I do, I, I did work hard on the project, but it wouldn't have been been possible without my grad students, right? And one of them is actually, I mentioned Jen Dominich. After she finished the ISG project, she went on to become a full-time um, extension specialist for the Indiana DNR. Oh, that's fantastic. So, yeah, so she's there and, uh, you know, doing the same uh, similar type of work, right, but with real people on a daily basis, right? That's- so I do think it's very important to acknowledge that and recognize that and then also to say support like in Illinois, Indiana, Seagram will, it's, it's a reason why that happened. Right? Right. Yeah. That it leads to bigger things that exactly. hopefully continue e- to help. Exactly. So. Yeah. Great. Very cool. Okay. Thanks, Xiao. <laughs> no problem. Anytime. Awesome. Now I will hit stop here. <laughs> And thanks a lot to Zhao for sharing that interesting work with us. Well, Carolyn, that's going to do it for another round of Teach Me About the Great Lakes. Folks out there in Internet land, if you want to find out more, I encourage you to visit our website at www.iicgrant.org. Or maybe you want to follow us on Twitter. You can do that also at I-L-I-N-C-Grant. That stands for Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant. Um, and if you want to rate, subscribe, review the show, and so on, go to the show webpage at teachgreatlakes.transistor.fm. Carolyn, what's something you learned about the Great Lakes today? What I learned about the Great Lakes is that people living in watersheds that are close to the Great Lakes tend to think that it's someone else's problem that pollution is going into the Great Lakes. I thought that was a really interesting piece to say, well... Maybe my stuff isn't as bad as somebody else's. And so it was really interesting to hear Zhao talk about that that's a thing and to think about how can we make that not a thing? Yeah, that is. Maybe that sucks. No, that doesn't. No, I thought that, that, was a, that was a fascinating part of that discussion. And it really tied into a lot of what I've seen. And I hadn't, in other research and personal context, I hadn't really thought about it in a Great Lakes context. Exactly. We have a, a one of my wife's uncles has a lake a house on Grand Lake St. Mary's in Ohio which is among the most polluted lakes there are. And every time I go there, I talk with the homeowner about the cause of the, the pollution, but I also talk with one of Libby's other uncles 
who is a farmer, and I, he likes to talk to me about the pollution too, and they both have very different ideas about the source of it. And so that really drove that home for me too. I thought that was really fascinating. And I also thought it was interesting to hear about how the different levels of information about water quality didn't seem to make a difference, maybe on the extremes, uh, in terms of people who already knew a lot or already had strong attitudes one way or another. It might have uh, uh, might have made their beliefs even more extreme, but it didn't have a, a lot of effect on kind of the mushy middle. And, and that's not surprising. As someone who's done a fair amount of uh, you know theoretical and pra- applied social science research, I wasn't stunned to hear that, but it's still interesting in this context. And I think that it's made me think a lot about how we communicate about these issues to people as an organization. Right. And what needs to be tacked on to the information that is important to share yep. and how you can frame it in a way that people find it meaningful. Yeah, I agree. And the way she said it, that information is sufficient but not necessary right. is a great way of thinking about that. Right. Well, great. Well, that wraps it up for this month. Can't wait to see you next month. Uh, until then, keep grating those lakes. Beep, 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 beep.